Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 26, verses 1 through 14. And uh, in John chapter 1, it talks about how when Jesus came, that uh, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the word that's used there for the dwelling is, uh, another way you could translate that, another way you could say it is uh, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And this is what's going on where we uh, read in Exodus that God is preparing the people for Jesus, even in uh, the way that he would dwell with them in Jesus. But before then, he was actually going to tabernacle among them in a tabernacle. And so there are these uh, descriptions given to the people who have come out of uh, slavery in Egypt, and God has brought them to Mount Sinai, and now he is giving them instructions on here is how you are to be my people, and I am to be your God, and how we are to dwell together, even though I am a holy God and you are a sinful people. How does that work? And so there are uh, these instructions given, and we get a part of that this morning in Exodus 26, verses 1 through 14. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us. And Lord, we do pray this morning that you would help us to be those who have ears to hear, minds to think and to understand, and hearts that are actually ready to receive your word into our lives. Lord, this morning, uh, by your word and by your spirit, you would continue to change us into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 26, verses 1 through 14. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain on the other, in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain on the, of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. Now you know. Turning then to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Jesus in his teaching says, after he's been teaching for quite a bit, then says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. 
When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we get to our sermon passage for today, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13 over the whole course of Advent and looking at a different part of it each week. And with that, it is a, it is a whole chapter that's all about love and very often gets taken apart from the rest of the whole book of 1 Corinthians and treated that way. It's just a, hey, it's a chapter about love. And on the one hand, it is a chapter about love. On the other hand, it is actually the middle part of a whole conversation that Paul is having with this church in Corinth about the way they've gotten off track as it relates to spiritual gifts. And so in chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. But he pauses to talk about love because as we mentioned last week, as he says um, at the beginning of this chapter, it doesn't matter what spiritual gift you have. If you don't have love, None of that matters. The gifts have been given to the church for a purpose. It's for the building up of the church and for the uh, good of everyone. And uh, when instead people are using, it to, using those gifts to prop up themselves and push others down and to divide the church because there is no love, he says, that, that's not what they're for. And now they're, uh, they're not points of pride, but they're actually worthless. And so we will look at it in that context. But um, I also, before we even get into it, I want to caution us a little bit because I think this is, uh, it's really easy when you hit a passage that has familiar language, familiar words, you've heard this before, to let your ears glaze over. Is that a thing? <laughs> like your eyes glaze over. you, Where you just like, oh, yeah, I know this one already, right? Well, um, I think this, <laughs> this passage may be uh, more than we realize. When in one of the Bible Project videos, uh, the one on the law, one of the ones on the law, there's a part where Tim, talking about Jesus, said that uh, Jesus said that the demand of all the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. And then Tim responds by saying, so that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. And Tim says, this is the brilliance of this project. Then Tim says, well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. I mentioned earlier that the gospel keeps us both from pride and despair. And we're going to look at both of those in as it relates to uh, love and specifically with this chapter uh, 13, and we're specifically going to be looking at verses 4 through 7, uh, but we're going to read the whole thing, and we're going to look at uh, how we can't have pride, where we just hear these words and go, yeah, I do that. I'm a loving person. I at least do it better than other people I know. <laughs> but we will hear the, actually the, the demands of love, and so I want us to be open to hearing those demands to keep us from pride, but then also... After that, we'll look at then what keeps us from despair and thinking, I could never live like this. Why would I even try? So we're going to look at both of those, and time is short. Here we go. 
This is uh, 1 Corinthians, a whole chapter of 13, where Paul begins and says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child... I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What did we say we were going to look at first? The demands. The demands of love. How love is uh, far more demanding than we realize. And of course, how is it that we do this? We realize that this is not just an arbitrary description that Paul has just kind of made up out of nowhere. But he's talking about a specific kind of love. And in fact, it's the kind of love that we see in Jesus. And this is a very different uh, kind of love than the way that we use that word very commonly all the time. As I said last week, you will see it in advertisements. You'll see it all over the place, especially during Christmas season. You'll see this word love all the time. Note when you do and ask yourself every time you hear it, are they talking about the same kind that Paul's talking about here? Are they talking about the same kind that we see in Jesus? Because that's actually what he's describing here. Is the kind of love that we see in Jesus. So let's walk through it. We'll see how Jesus actually lives this out. And this is where we see how demanding it is to live a life of love. So what do we have? Love is patient. Is Jesus patient? Think of any examples of him being patient? My goodness. Three years with disciples who just seemed to miss it at every turn nearly, where he has to say the same things to them over and over again. Hey, by the way, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die on the third day, be raised again. And every time he says it, they're like, what was that? I didn't hear anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Or if they do acknowledge it, it's to say, no, that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to be like that. How many times, how long was I put up? Patient. He's very patient with the disciples and with others. I'm sure you can think of other 
examples. Love is kind. Was Jesus kind? Oh my goodness, yes. The story we read in the, for the children's sermon last week was actually when he is needing some alone time. He's going to go be alone. The crowds have been all around, and so Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples. They go to the other side of the lake, and when he gets there, the crowds who are hungry for Jesus actually have gone around the, uh, the lake on foot to meet him on the shore. So he gets there, and there they are. And he has compassion on them. He continues to teach them. And then when they, the day is late and there's, uh, people need to eat, instead of sending them away, he has compassion. <laughs> and, he, uh, and he feeds them. I'm sure you can think of other examples. It does not envy. Can you think of a single time that Jesus, as he's walking around, is looking at the stuff that Herod has and is like, man, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> he doesn't do that, does he? I've been over there, by the way. Some of the stuff that Herod the Great built is still there. And some of it is pretty impressive stuff. And you think about Jesus, who said he didn't have a place to lay his head. And he's walking around with all these things, and he doesn't ever say, boy, I'd sure love to have a palace like that. Instead, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't envy the things others have. Love does not boast. This is a tricky one, isn't it, when it comes to Jesus? Because there are two ways that you can boast. One is by saying that you're better than you are. Is it even possible for Jesus to say he's better than he is? Like he's the best, right? So how do you do that? But then the other thing is just saying how great you are, even if it's true, to kind of put others in their place and make them feel bad about themselves. This, uh, we don't see Jesus doing this. So Jesus will say amazing things like, I am the bread of life, right? Or I am the living water. He says these things, but it's, and it's these uh, incredible claims to who he is. It's different than everybody else. But I want you to notice, he's not saying it so that others feel bad about who they are. But he says it like, I am the bread of life because he knows you need life. And, you need, and for you to have it, you need to come to me. Like That's the invitation. And so it would be like if you're in a crowded restaurant and somebody starts choking and somebody else at the table stands up and says, is there a doctor in the house? And there's a doctor sitting at the next table who's like, I mean, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to brag. You know, I'm a doctor. It makes people feel bad. No. <laughs> it's not bragging to say you're a doctor. It's like, this is why you're a doctor. <laughs> Help, <laughs> right? And so for Jesus to say, I am the bread of life, he's not like, I am the bread of life. I'm not bragging. It's not that kind of thing. It's an invitation. Apart from me, you have no hope. But with me, you have life. Come to me. That's the invitation. And so it is... Um, in neither sense do we see Jesus boasting, but instead, um, even when he's saying amazing things about himself, it's for the good of others. He's uh, not proud. Jesus is not proud. He's not arrogant. And we think of uh, examples of Jesus uh, kind of being too good for something. I mean, you think about the, the Last Supper. I thought this was the last week. This is the um, time where he gets together. It's the night before he goes to the cross. He's sharing this last meal with his disciples. He knows this is it. And instead of being at the table and being like, look, 
let's just make this night all about me, guys, you know, because I got some hard stuff coming up. And so if we could just, no, he gets up from the table, wraps a towel around his waist, and he starts to wash their feet. He's not above it. Blows their minds. (laughs) This is not what rabbis did. This is not what teachers did. This is what servants did. But Jesus is not proud, but he serves. Does not dishonor others. We see Jesus, this is amazing. There are people that he interacts with. People who are like Nicodemus, who's a uh, member of the Sanhedrin, this ruling council in Jerusalem. And Jesus meets with him. There's a Samaritan woman who's like the opposite end of the social spectrum. And Jesus meets with her. And in his conversations with both of them, he doesn't dishonor either one. But he treats them with respect and dignity as people. It's not self-seeking. If you read the uh, chapter 2 in Philippians, letter Philippians, Paul includes this whole section where it's basically, you get the idea that if Jesus were self-seeking, he never would have come. He would never have been born. He would never have gone to the cross. And where would we be? But instead it says that uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And so, he came. Is not easily angered. Is Jesus easily angered? You see him just flying off the handle left and right? No. You can think of a, of a couple examples, and even those, uh, I think, are uh, difficult to see him being uh, flying off the handle kind of thing. You're probably thinking of um, a time where he is uh, flipping over tables and driving out money changers in the temple, right? And if you're thinking of that, that's probably because what other examples do you have? This is not an everyday occurrence for him. And in fact, Mark even tells us that that's not something that he did uh, just kind of in the moment, flew into a rage, but he actually went to the temple the day before. And then it's night, and so he goes uh, back, and then it's the next day that he comes in and does this. This is, this is premeditated. It's fulfilling a prophecy. It's a specific, it's, um, in fact, they're a highly symbolic act, and it's one that's intentionally provoking leaders uh, to the point that it leads to his crucifixion. It is intentional, it's calculated, he knows what he's doing, it's not just a flying off in a rage. Does that mean that Jesus never gets angry? No. But this is the character of God, right? As God reveals himself in Exodus to Moses, and he says, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. The uh, way they say that in Hebrew, actually, is uh, that God has a long nose. It's just, that's just fun trivia for you. Uh, <laughs> but you know how you, your nose gets hot and you burn with anger kind of thing? And, and so it's like, well, God has a really long nose, so it takes him forever. Like that, that fuse takes forever <laughs> kind of thing to, uh, to get hot. Anyway, um, not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. This one's pretty easy with Jesus, right? I mean, good grief. He's on the cross, and what does he pray? About the people who have put him on the cross. 
He didn't deserve to be there. And they have uh, tortured him and mocked him and nailed him to a cross until he dies. And what does he pray? Not, God, you, I'm, you better repay them for this evil they're doing. Instead, it's, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What? Keeps no record of wrongs. You say, okay, yeah, but that's, that's easy, though, because they didn't know what they were doing, so we'll let them off the hook. What about Peter? Remember Jesus' interaction with Peter? He actually says to him, you're going to deny me? And Peter's like, I won't deny you. <laughs> no, you're going to deny me. Nah, I'd die before I deny you. Tonight, three times, you're going to deny me. And then that night, we see Peter saying, I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. I'm not. Three times. The third time, even calling down curses on himself. I swear, I don't. Does he know what he's doing? Oh, he knows what he's doing. And then, at the end of the book of John, we get this story after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he comes to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples have been out fishing. And Jesus calls to them. And when Peter recognizes that it's Jesus, he jumps out of the boat and he swims to the shore and he comes up to Jesus and it's almost like we expect, if we didn't know Jesus well, that we'd expect that Jesus would be like, uh-uh, no, 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 not you. <laughs> now, I know what you did. You did exactly what I told you were going to do. You said you wouldn't, but you did. You did. And no, we're not having that now. You think you can deny me during the hard times and then come back when it's good? No. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Instead, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Feed my sheep. Three times. And then you know the next time that Jesus brings it up is never. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. <laughs> Another easy one, right? You remember that story where Jesus is delighting in evil? No, doesn't exist. Now, he gets accused of that, right? Because he hangs around with people who are engaged in some pretty evil stuff. But he's not there because he is delighting in the evil. He's there to rescue them from it. That's very different. Love rejoices with the truth. Does Jesus rejoice with the truth? Yes. (laughs) He asked the disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? Peter's like, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus is like, yes. <laughs> yes, this was not given to you, or this was, yeah. This was given to you by God. Um, and he rejoices with this truth. It always protects. We see Jesus sticking up for uh, the people who needed protection. You think about the, the woman who's caught in adultery. They bring somebody who actually, they have every right to, to kill, to stone her. And yet she walks away. Why? Because Jesus protected her. Not only protecting her from them, but even protecting her from herself as he gives her the instructions going forward. Always trusts. This is a tricky one. You might initially think, oh, well, this means that, you know, does Jesus, like, trust every person that comes to him that they're telling the truth? No, (laughs) he does not. But does Jesus always trust God in everything, 
even when it comes to the point of praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to go through this. I'm paraphrasing a lot, by the way. You can look all these up later. He's like, I don't want to go through this. But not my will, but yours be done. Trusting God, even in uh, such a moment. Trusting uh, God, even when he's being tempted in the wilderness. The temptations are there, and they're real. But he trusts God instead. Always hopes. My goodness. (laughs) This is that looking forward. Looking forward to what God has said he is going to do. And Jesus, we see him continually pointing to this kingdom of God and saying, this is how it's going to be. And in fact, it's already broken into the world now. It's not in fullness yet, but this is what's coming. And we see him over and over and over. This is what's coming. And I do think there's a sense of this where it does have to do also with people. Hoping for the good uh, of what God can do in their life. You think about the person who wrote this. This is Paul. Hebrew name was Saul. He was a Pharisee who was really um, a warrior for God. He was going to do whatever it took to make sure that nobody was leading people away from God. Only problem was he was doing the very thing he thought he was fighting against. And so we see in Acts chapter 7, we see a guy named Stephen who's following Jesus and they are going to kill him for it. And he gives this amazing sermon <laughs> talking about the whole of the Old Testament, how it all leads to Jesus, how Jesus really is a fulfillment of all this. And they just get furious and they kill him. And it says that Saul is standing there giving his approval. If there's anybody that you know, the disciples at the time would have thought, well, there's no way God can change their life. There's no way that he can get a hold of them and turn them around. It would have been Saul. And yet, he meets Jesus, has his life turned around, and actually writes most of the books we have in our New Testament today. Completely uh, turned around. Um, and, and I will say, it's not because he tried really hard to turn around. It's because he met Jesus. And so, um, in fact, I think he was trying really hard to not believe in Jesus until he met Jesus. And I think the same thing, you know, when we look at people and say, well, that's a hopeless case. Mm-mm. I think in, in Jesus there's no such thing. And I think this is also why we, what we see with Jesus there are several times where he issues invitations for people to follow him who don't. Like, but doesn't he know they're not going to follow him? Why even bother issuing the invitation? I think there's hope. I think there's always hope. Um, Peter talks about this in uh, one of his letters, saying, you know, this is, God is not slow, but he's patient. He's wanting everyone to come to repentance. There's a hope. That's there. And then, of course, always perseveres. Love always perseveres. It keeps on, and it keeps on, and it keeps on. This is what we see, obviously, in Jesus as well, who the very last words of the book of Matthew is him telling his disciples, I will be with you always. The very end of the age. 
And there's more, obviously, that could be said about all of these as it relates to Jesus and how he lives us out. But let me ask you, as you hear this and you compare it to your own life, if Jesus gets a 10 on the 1 to 10 scale on each of these things, how do you score? As you go back through there, I've actually uh, printed out a little chart for you. taken these same things and put them in a little grid of what uh, love is and what it uh, is not and what it does and what it does not. It's not red and green for Christmas colors, but that kind of works. It's more the, the green for go and the red for stop, you know. Anyway, but as you look over each of these things and you compare how Jesus fulfills them and how we tend to fall short, like I said at first, we... Uh, We can come at these with pride and go, yeah, I do all that. I don't even need to hear this. I already love. I do a great job. Then we hear all this, how Jesus actually is patient and kind. Doesn't envy, doesn't boast. It's not proud. Anyway. And we go, do I live like that? Do I live like that with the same kind of consistency that Jesus did all the way through? And if we're honest, the answer is no. We don't. So what's the other danger? Now we're no longer in danger of pride. Now we're in danger of despair. Of going, well, I can't do this. I'm so far from that. I can't do it. I might as well not even try. What's the point? You remember the story that we read for our uh, children's sermon? I hope you were all paying attention. It's a time where Jesus actually steps, or not, Jesus steps on the water and then calls to Peter, who also steps out of the boat onto the water and walks in the water. Let me ask you, can Peter walk on the water apart from Jesus? No. Can Peter walk on water if Jesus tells him to? Yes. We might need to think about this one for a while. Do you know what happened just before this? What happened just before this was there was the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus actually tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, yeah, we can't do that. And they're right. And then Jesus takes the bread and the fish, he gives thanks, and then he gives it to the disciples who then give it to the people to eat. He said, you give them something to eat. And they said, we can't. And then, by the end of the story, they do. (laughs) What makes the difference? Jesus has enabled them to do what he has commanded them to do. You follow this? Peter got it. I think that's why when he's in the boat and he sees Jesus walking on the water, he's like, hey, I remember. I'm like, I'm learning some things here. We're slow coming along, but hey, he's got this one. If Jesus tells us to feed the people, he will enable us to feed the people. If Jesus tells me to walk on the water, I bet I could even do that. He doesn't just jump out of the boat onto the water going, I bet I can. He says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And so when Jesus says, come, well, if he's going to tell me to do it, he's going to enable me to do it. And sure enough, that's what we see. Now, does Jesus command us to love with this kind of love. Over and over again. 
He does. In fact, we looked at that last week in that um, John 13, 14, 15, 16, <laughs> that upper room uh, the night before he goes to the cross, and he's talking with the disciples, and this over and over again is love one another as I have loved you. We just looked at all of these as descriptions of how Jesus loves. And he says, this is how you are to love one another. And he gives this command over and over. In fact, no greater command than this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hangs on these. This is what we see with Paul talking about the, uh, the spiritual gifts. That the, None of those gifts stand on their own. It all hangs on love. And now we see Jesus commanding us to love and saying the whole law and the prophets, it all hangs on love. This is not some optional extra for some Christians. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to understand the love that God has for us in Jesus, to be transformed by that love into those who love like him. Now, here's the good news. I know you've probably already made the connection. I'm going to spell it out for you. In the same way that Peter got the, uh, the message, if Jesus commands me to do it, he will enable me to do it. If Jesus commands us to love like this, what do you think that means for us? It means he'll enable us to do it, right? I'll ask you again, though. Can we love like this apart from Jesus? No more than Peter could walk on the water any other day of the week. Can we love like this with Jesus? Like Peter's able to walk on the water when Jesus commands him to. Jesus actually says in John uh, 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing, right? We will continue to talk more about uh, this chapter. There are parts, believe it or not, that we haven't even gotten to yet. (laughs) Talk more about that in the coming weeks. But for now, I hope that you are, as you go from here, you don't go in pride, thinking you've already got this down, or in despair, thinking there's no point in trying but I hope that we go from here captivated by the love of Jesus in such a way that we would be transformed by the love of Jesus into people who love like Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this amazing love that we see that is uh, the kind that gives sacrificially for the good of others. Now we pray that you would help us to stay connected. To To stay connected to you. To continue to meditate on the love of Jesus for us, for others. Help us to remember his challenging words where he says even pagans and tax collectors love the people who love them.
That's not what it means to be Christian. But it means to love like you love. That it's even while we were sinners that Christ died for us. And so he calls us to love not just those who love us, but even those who don't. God, this is a high bar. One that we know we cannot meet apart from you. But Lord, we do trust that if you have commanded it, you will enable it. Help us to live by faith. I pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.